Good morning. Our first case is in the matter of J.U., and we will hear from the appellant. Please the court. Good morning. My name is Janelle Varley, and I work with the North Carolina Attorney General's Office, and I'm here today representing the state in the matter of JU. I'd like to reserve five minutes for a rebuttal. This is a juvenile delinquency case, and the issue in this case is whether the North Carolina Court of Appeals erred by holding that the sexual battery petition was fatally deficient because it failed to allege facts supporting the element of force and therefore failed to invoke the trial court's subject matter jurisdiction. In this case, the North Carolina Court of Appeals did err by holding that the sexual battery petition was fatally deficient because the petition sufficiently alleged facts supporting the element of force where the petition alleged that the juvenile touched the victim's vaginal area. In addition, although the petition did not include the words by force, the element of force was sufficiently charged by the equivalent terms unlawfully and against the victim's will, which were alleged in the petition. For these reasons, the petition here was sufficient to charge sexual battery, and the trial court did have subject matter jurisdiction to enter judgment against the juvenile. In the alternative, this court should adopt the view that petition defects are not jurisdictional. Under North Carolina General Statute Section 7B-1802, a petition in which delinquency is alleged shall contain a plain and concise statement without allegations of an evidentiary nature asserting facts supporting every element of a criminal offense and the juvenile's commission thereof with sufficient precision clearly to apprise the juvenile of the conduct which is the subject of the allegation. In a juvenile delinquency action, the juvenile petition serves essentially the same function as an indictment. Our courts have recognized that while an indictment should give a defendant sufficient notice of the charges against him, it should not be subjected to hyper-technical scrutiny with respect to form. This court has said it is not the function of an indictment to bind the hands of the state with technical rules of pleading. Rather, its purposes are to identify clearly the crime being charged, thereby putting the accused on reasonable notice to defend against it and prepare for trial and to protect the accused from being jeopardized by the state more than once for the same crime. The general rule in this state and elsewhere is that an indictment for a statutory offense is sufficient if the offense is charged in the words of the statute, either literally or substantially or in equivalent words. Words are certainly meaningful. How is it that we should look at force as a term of art 
and the phrase against the victim's will as a phrase of art in looking at those two as being so analogous that they are able to be substituted for one another in the indictment or the here petition? Your Honor, um, I believe in response to your question, if I'm understanding it correctly, um, this court, in a case that I was calling Johnson 2, a case that addressed the sufficiency of an indictment for rape in which the term forcible or forcibly was absent from that indictment but present in the statute or code, this court wrote in that case, Johnson 2, this is a case from 1946, that the term forcibly can be supplied by any equivalent word and is sufficiently charged by the words feloniously and against her will. And although the term unlawfully was used in this sexual battery petition at issue, instead of feloniously, that is the appropriate word in this case because sexual battery is not a felony but is a class A1 misdemeanor. I don't like to often engage in uh, hypotheticals, but I'll try one here, especially you know going back to law school days when I was surprised to find that uh, an unwanted kiss could be a battery. One could kiss someone and it be unwanted, but it yet not be by force. Would you agree with that? Your Honor, if I may, in response to that question, I would like to direct our attention to the case of State versus Brown. And in that case, this court, that's a case from 1992, and in that case, this court said that at the time, um, that was a case that considered sufficiency of the evidence with respect to the element of force. And this court said that at that time, it neither considered nor decided whether the actual physical force, which will establish the force element of a sexual offense, may be shown simply through the evidence of the force inherent in the sexual act at issue. And this court said, again, in 1992, that it would expressly defer any decision on that question until presented with a case which requires its resolution. So in response to your hypothetical, I would argue maybe the force inherent in the sexual act itself could be considered sufficient force. So you feel like our case law is sufficient to support the state's position here? And if that's indeed the case, then what about the other side of that coin, so to speak, in terms of looking at indictments specifically alleging what the what the elements are of a particular crime or here what would constitute delinquency for the juvenile and force as again a term of art not being expressly alleged in the petition your honor if i may um i'll, I'll respond by saying that <clears throat> i think there are two separate um, sufficiency questions at issue. In this case, before us, we're talking about the sufficiency of the petition. In addition, of course, it seems to 
um, also kind of extend and is intertwined, or we, I have looked at in the state's brief and arguments sufficient to the evidence cases that could inform um, the discussion regarding the sufficiency of the petition in this case. But the state's position in this case is that the petition sufficiently alleged facts supporting the element of force where the petition alleged that the juvenile touched the victim's vaginal area. And in addition, although the petition did not include the words by force, the element of force was sufficiently charged by those equivalent terms unlawfully and against the victim's will, which were alleged in the petition. So in this case, uh, the state's position is that the petition sufficiently alleged facts supporting the element of force. So again, if you look back to 7B-1802, a petition in which delinquency is alleged shall contain a plain and concise statement without allegations of an evidentiary nature asserting facts supporting every element of a criminal offense. So I just want to follow up on Justice Morgan's question. So um, because I am interested in the, and I too do not want to get into too many hypotheticals here. This is a sensitive subject, but, but just can, would you agree that just as sort of um, the ordinary meaning of words that if you were to say that you were, that something was against your will, that to overcoming that could certainly be done without what we would traditionally think of as force. Since will is not a physical thing, it's a mental state. That there are ways that one could have that will overcome without anyone using what we would traditionally think of as force. Do you agree with that? Or do you think, in other words, do we need to ask whether there's something equivalent to the felonious part of Johnson in this case? There is just against one's will is, is force. What's your view on that? Um, Your Honor, if I may, I think specifically regarding the word felonious, in this case, the equivalent term, I believe is unlawfully, because we are again dealing with a misdemeanor. Um, trying to address your question uh, regarding the terms by force and against the will of the victim, um, against the victim's will, uh, if I'm understanding the question accurately, I think that those two elements are intertwined such that perhaps by force is really demonstrating the lack of consent. So when we talk about force um, under the sexual offense statutes, when you get to a sufficiency of the evidence argument, there are different types of force that can be um, used for sufficiency purposes, whether that's physical force to overcome resistance from the victim or constructive force where threats or other actions are used to force the victim's submission to the unwanted touching or the sexual contact. Well, that, so that's sort of what I'm getting at is if, if there's no scenario where you could say this is against one's will and th that that will is overcome and it's but there was no force used. If that doesn't exist, then it seems like the, your argument about Johnson, that you have the felonious and the against the will is, is just the felonious becomes surplusage because you're saying against the will of a person. If you overcome that will, then you must have used force. And that's what sort of I'm getting at. Is, do you, is that your position or do you think there are scenarios where it's not, that alone would not, those two words are not equivalent, two phrases? Um. No, Your Honor, I think that is a helpful point to, uh, to be making in this argument. And um, 
It may, and, and I think I, I can agree that um, that there is an implication that if a sexual contact, so this unwanted touching of the victim's vaginal area um, without any advance notice, that that is, there is sufficient force implied where the action, where the contact occurred against the victim's will. Counsel, um, if your position is that if it's against the will, then force necessarily was used, are you then saying that the statute in defining the offense as being by force and against the will, are you inviting us to conclude that the by force language is unnecessary? Your Honor, um, no, respectfully, I don't think I would go that far. The state's position here is that the petition sufficiently alleged facts supporting the element of force where the petition alleged that the juvenile touched the victim's vaginal area unlawfully and against the victim. Well, let me get at it a different way. Is it your position that if the petition had not used the words unlawfully and had not used the, word, the words unlawfully and feloniously, that it would be insufficient if, if it merely alleged against the victim's will? Are you saying it had to have the words unlawfully and feloniously to allege force? Your Honor, in this case, the petition did not include the word feloniously. Excuse me, un unlawfully. If, if it had not included unlawfully, would it be sufficient in your view? If I may, I think I'm, I'm making a couple different arguments that uh, really the bottom line is that the petition in this case was sufficient to charge and plead sexual battery. Um, in addition, the petition was sufficient for um, providing notice to the juvenile of the charged offense and the conduct that was the subject of the, of the allegation. The petition here satisfied the dual purposes of informing the juvenile of the allegations to allow him to prepare a defense and to protect the juvenile from double jeopardy. And in this case, particularly, um, the state's position is that the petition did contain a plain and concise statement asserting facts supporting every element of sexual battery with sufficient precision to apprise the juvenile of the conduct which was the subject of the allegation. The language in the petition closely tracked the language in the sexual battery statute, correctly identified the applicable statute that addresses sexual battery, correctly named the victim, and again, specified the behavior that was the basis of the allegation. And although the petition did not include the words by force, the state's position is that it sufficiently alleged facts supporting the element of force. Can I ask you a question about the, how far the proposition that un, the term unlawfully can provide sufficient um, allegation of force, you know, is there anything else in the indictment that unlawfully could cover? So if it, if it hadn't said against her will, um, you know, what, what is to limit us to say, well then unlawfully would mean it's against her will? 
and and how much of this how much how many of the allegation how many of the elements of the offense can be covered by the unlawfully phrase your honor i i don't know that i know the answer to that question and i think i'll, I'll also point out i think this area of the law can be confusing which is one of the reasons it might feel confusing for me to argue about it but if i may i'll point us to those old cases that the state cited in its brief when talking about us sufficiently charging using equivalent terms. And I think in the, there were three cases that the state discussed in its brief, um, what, what I was calling Johnson 1 18, from 1872, State versus Marsh from 1903, and Johnson 2 from 1946. And if I remember correctly, in those cases, Your Honor, the, um, those cases were dealing, discussing the sufficiency of indictments for rape in which the term forcible or forcibly was absent from the indictment, but again, present in the, rape, in the statute or code. And again, if I remember correctly, this court back in 1872 upheld the indictment, found that the indictment was sufficient where the indictment included both the terms I'm sorry, the absence of the term forcibly, but did include the phrase against the victim's will. And in contrast, in State versus Marsh and Johnson 2 from 1946, those two indictments, I believe, were found to be insufficient where the term, both terms, forcibly and against the victim's will, were absent. So again, what this court wrote in Johnson 2 is that the term forcibly can be supplied by any equivalent word and is sufficiently charged by the words feloniously and against her will. So the state's argument here is that it isn't just the term unlawfully that could sufficiently charge the element of force, but it is the combination of the two, unlawfully and against the victim's will. And then the petition in this case. So it seems like we've covered every iteration of this except the last one, which is, is there anything about feloniously that indicates force in a way that unlawfully would not? Your Honor, I, I don't know the answer to that question. It was my understanding that in those cases, because the crime was a felony, the language of the indictment included the term feloniously. And again, in this case, because the, um, the petition is alleging a misdemeanor that the term unlawfully is used. So it isn't a surprise that the term feloniously is missing or is absent but from the this petition. But the point is it's, it's just odd because both unlawfully and feloniously can cover conduct that has nothing to do with force. There are many, many things that are unlawful that are, don't have anything to do with force. There are many felonies that don't have anything to do with force. So what was it about adding that word in with against one's will, which is already one of the elements that you get another element in the, in the offense? Well, I think different facts can support, different terms and facts can support more than one element of the offense charged. So again, if I may, the statute at issue in this case, um, the sexual battery statute at North Carolina General Statute section 14-27.33 states in relevant part that a person commits sexual battery if for the purpose of sexual arousal, sexual gratification, or sexual abuse, they engage in sexual contact with another person by force and against the will of the other person. 
The definition of sexual contact includes touching the sexual organ, anus, breast, groin, or buttocks of any person, and touching means physical contact with another person, whether accomplished directly through the clothing of the person committing the offense or through the clothing of the victim. And the petition at issue in this case alleged that the juvenile committed an act in violation of North Carolina General Statute Section 14-27.33 on 18 September 2019 at 11.01 a.m. in that on or about the date of the offense, the juvenile did unlawfully and willfully engage in sexual contact with the victim by touching the victim's vaginal area against the victim's will for the purpose of sexual gratification. So the state is arguing that this petition did contain a plain and concise statement asserting facts supporting every element of sexual battery with sufficient precision to apprise the juvenile of the conduct which was the subject of the allegation. Again, the language in this petition closely tracked the language in the sexual battery statute. The petition correctly identified the applicable statute that addresses sexual battery. Council, it would seem to me that the purpose of a charging document uh, is to put the uh, uh, defendant or here the juvenile on notice. And um, one of the things that I think we have, uh, um, I think both sides agree to is hyper-technicalities uh, in uh, reading of charging documents is, is sort of a way of the past. Is that your understanding? Yes, Your Honor. So, so does the term in the, uh, in the petition unlawfully have any meaning? Um, in other words, if we were to extract that term uh, from the petition and the petition were to read, uh, did willfully engage in, in violation of 1427.33, doesn't that say the same thing? If, if you are in violation of a statute, isn't that unlawful? Yes, I think I can agree to that, Your Honor. Okay. Well, are you asking us to, in response uh, to Justice Berger's question uh, that you just answered, are you asking us to somehow relax uh, indictment uh, requirements? Uh, obviously, by force, if those terms had been used, would be more appropriate here, but I know also that the state's relying upon cases that are decades old and, and even one back in the 19th century, which of course our vernacular in everyday usage somewhat changes, but yet statutory uh, requirements certainly are much more exacting. And it sounds like you're asking us to uh, broaden uh, indictment allowance in terms of what would be sufficient. Uh, if we would rule in favor of the state, how would you have us to craft uh, what our decision would be in such a way that you've got us to look at it in, in, from the state's perspective that words that are not in the statute nonetheless can mean what they meant decades ago uh, in terms of they not being as exact, but on the other hand, meaning and can therefore be construed to mean the same thing. Um, if I may, Your Honor, the state is not necessarily asking for this court to broaden their um, 
the uh, sufficiency of petitions or indictments, um, not necessarily. And in this case, putting the, uh, the old-timey cases to the side for a moment, the only words that are included in the sexual battery petition or the, re the relevant parts that are absent from the petition itself, I think we're focused, of course, on the two words, by force. But the petition is not required to, uh, to include the words themselves. The, uh, under 7B-1802, the petition is <clears throat> in which delinquency is alleged shall assert facts supporting every element of the criminal offense. So again, I think the state is advancing a few different ways in which this court might be able to rule in its favor, including the argument that the petition, although the petition did not include the words by force, that the petition sufficiently or adequately alleged facts supporting the element of force where it alleged that the juvenile unlawfully touched the victim's vaginal area against the victim's will. Uh, in addition, although the, the state is also arguing that although the petition did not include the words by force, the element of force was sufficiently charged by the equivalent terms unlawfully and against the victim's will, which were alleged in the petition. So that, does, that argument does look back into the older cases that were dealing with uh, indictments for rape, which did use language that is outdated. <clears throat> but again, those statutes included the outdated language of ravishing or carnally no. And those words are not at issue in this case. This case is dealing simply with the sexual battery petition and the sexual battery statute of today. I, I just, I just want to um, take you back to Johnson 2 for a moment. Oh, well, I'm sorry. If you want to reserve the rest of your time, I can. It's, I think it's a fairly quick question. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, the question is, in that case, the court ruled that the indictment was not sufficient, and, and the language that was missing there was against her will, because it, the indictment in that case said, unlawfully, willfully, violently, and feloniously did make an assault, violently did ravish and carnally know, um, against the form of the statute. So everything else was there except against her will. And what I'm struggling with is, if that and why, if your theory of how we can use um, the language unlawfully to substitute for by force or to imply or to it's subsumed, that force is subsumed, why wouldn't against her will be subsumed in violently and feloniously and unlawfully? So why, you know, why shouldn't, shouldn't Johnson have, Johnson too have come out the other way on your theory? Um. Perhaps, Your Honor, but the state isn't arguing, especially looking back to the older cases, um, when looking at the uh, sufficiently charged through equivalent terms argument that the state is making. I think it isn't an apples to apples comparison here. Um, and again, the state is arguing that the discussion from those cases regarding equivalent terms is relevant to the discussion here today when reviewing the sufficiency of the sexual battery petition in this juvenile delinquency case, but it, it, isn't, um, it isn't an exact science. To, it, I don't think you can draw straight lines. Again, it isn't an apples to apples comparison. And if I may, I'll reserve the rest of my time and I'll go ahead and sit down. Thank, Thank you. you very much. We'll hear from the appellee.
morning. May it please the court. My name is Heidi Reiner. I'm here from the Office of the Appellate Defender representing the juvenile in this case. Um, I just wanted to start by noting that um, the juvenile in this case has successfully completed the terms of his disposition and his probation was successfully terminated on August 3rd of 2021. Um, and now getting into um, the second issue about whether the element of force has been subsumed, I just want to talk about the Johnson cases and the Marsh case a little bit. Um, we've discussed, I think the justices have made good points in their questions that the words unlawfully and feloniously are so broad and vague that it seems like under the state's argument they could essentially subsume any element and relieve the state of its burden to actually plead um, the elements of the crime. Um, I'd also note that in um, those cases, in addition to the language that we've talked about, um, probably as a function of what we've called the old-timey language, those petitions also, or those indictments also use the words with force and arms. Um, and I cited in my memorandum of additional authority a case called State versus Peak, which talks about how, although the phrase with force and arms is not required in an indictment, when the element of force is otherwise missing, that is sufficient to supply it. Um, so I would point the court to that case and um, talk about why those, why those older cases are different. But the, the other big point is that since those cases, much more recently, this court has decided State versus Alston, in which this court explicitly, it's a sufficiency case, but this court explicitly um, found that the assault had been against the victim's will, but that there was no force. So Justice Dietz, this goes to your question about whether there are instances in which there may not be force um, beyond the touching itself, um, but that that contact could be against the will. Um, so the elements again here are a sexual contact and all we know about that in this case is that it was touching. Um, that, that word in the petition is so broad and so um, could be proven by so many things that I think there's a plenty of examples where a touch would not require significant force beyond what's um, necessary to overcome um, any resistance on the part of the victim, which is which is the standard that this court enunciated in Brown. Um, the petition here just has, uh, um, like I said, none of the language that's in those older cases. And if the petition here was deemed sufficient, I think um, as Justice Morgan talked about, well, that would be relaxed. Counsel, I, I apologize. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there's uh, agreed, there has been some discussion of older cases, but Procedurally, what's the difference between an indictment uh, and a, a juvenile petition? Procedurally, um, a petition is, is usually drafted by um, either a law enforcement officer or a court counselor and then can be reviewed by a prosecutor as opposed to drafted directly by a prosecutor. And, and submitted to a grand jury. Right. That sort of thing. So, so in, in procedurally, um, a juvenile petition is more akin to a warrant than uh, an indictment. Um, I would disagree with that to the extent that the statutes um, governing juvenile petitions, the contents of juvenile petitions, so 7B1802 um, and the criminal analog require, um, require the petition to assert facts supporting every element of a criminal offense and the, and the juvenile's commission thereof. Right, so supporting every element, not detailing every element. Absolutely. And, and so with an indictment, if there's a defect, uh, how does a prosecutor correct that defect? Uh, 
depending on the nature of the defect, it may be amended or it may be dismissed or the, the prosecutor could get a superseding indictment. And, and to amend a juvenile petition, how, how, do, how does a prosecutor do that? Um, Article 24, I believe 7B2400 provides for the amendment of petitions, but that can only be done when there's not a material change. Here, it would require adding an entire element, one of four elements, by force. So an amendment would be improper, and dismissal is the correct remedy, um, and drawing the petition again if necessary. Well, you would not have to seek a superseding petition through a grand jury, would you? Uh, no. Okay. So, so with, with that in mind, uh, so, some of the um, cases dealing with indictments deal with variances because uh, an element went through or did not go through the grand jury proceeding uh, and then was presented at court. Is, is that a, a fairly basic way of explaining it? Um, I'm not sure I understand. Well, if there's a variance, what, what does variance as it relates to an indictment mean? Um, well, a variance between the allegations in the indictment and the evidence presented at trial. Right. Um, so that means the evidence presented at trial is different from what was alleged. The, the prosecutor is bound by the allegations in the indictment. And, and that, that is problematic because it did not, that, the allegation of that element did not go through the grand jury proceeding. Is that right? As, as a basic sort of understanding. Oh, well, I, th I think the more basic understanding actually is that allegation is required just as much as proof is required. That sort of basic tenet of law that we all learn in, in, first, in, in the first year of law school, the allegation is as necessary as proof. And I don't think necessarily that the grand jury procedure is um, sort of the linchpin of that right. But that, that has gone to a lot of uh, the, the, this court's cases on sufficiency of the indictment um, and jurisdictional issues. Uh, I mean, would you agree with that? Um, I can't say that I've looked into criminal indictments specifically um, a lot, but I do think that the juvenile code is very clear that petitions um, that correctly allege all the facts, uh, all facts supporting each element, are what confer jurisdiction on the juvenile courts. Okay, so, so how is the indictment here, how is it deficient in alleging or asserting facts supporting every element? There's nothing in this petition that um, supports the element of force. Okay, but, but you said element. Uh, the, the statute says asserting facts supporting every element. Right, there are no facts in this petition supporting the element of force. So, so that you, you, your argument is that uh, alleging in this petition that the defendant uh, or juvenile did unlawfully, willfully engage in sexual contact with the victim by touching the victim's vaginal area against the victim's will for the purpose of sexual gratification in violation of NCGS 1427.33 uh, is not an allegation asserting facts that support the elements. Yes, that's right. Okay, um, and why not? Because the elements of sexual battery are sexual contact with another person for the purpose of sexual gratification, by force, and against the will. Um, this one alleges contact with another for sexual gratification and against that person's will, but none of those facts allege force. Right, but, but do you see the difference between uh, what you're arguing is a requirement to include force in here and the statute's um, uh, pretty clear directive that the, or, or uh, requirement 
that a petition merely needs to assert facts supporting every element, not, not um, assert every element. Right. Um, I, I hear what you're saying. I guess I just don't see anything in this petition that asserts facts supporting force. Um, the word touch is used in the petition. That doesn't necessarily imply force was used. Um, I think there are plenty of examples where you can think about um, perhaps inadvertently touching someone's um, genitals or breasts and that no force was used. Um, so here, I mean, the, the facts of this case, we don't look at that, of course, for the sufficiency of the petition, but the facts of this case also show that there was a lack of force. Um, they were playing around in a, in a middle school um, lunch line and um, allegedly my client touched her vaginal area and immediately stopped. And, and when I say touched, I mean tapped is essentially what the evidence shows in that they were messing around in line. Um, there are no facts in this petition that suggest that that was forced over to overcome some sort of resistance or facts to support that this was done by surprise or facts to support that there was constructive force at issue. It doesn't have to say the words by force, but it does have to allege some facts that support the element of force. Um. Excuse me. And my opposing counsel has talked about how the petition here closely tracked um, the language of the statute, the criminal statute. I would just point out again that it did closely track it, but it left out an entire element. And um, I, I would also just like to speak to the practical side of this. Um, this is not a, a big ask for the state or for whoever is drafting the petition. Um, as many of you probably know, the UNC School of Government provides a large notebook that has form indictments in it that list every element and prosecutors fill in the blanks with, with the name of the client, the circumstances as necessary. Um, the statute requires that prosecutors do this. Um, it's not a big ask and I think if this court were to relax the standards and suggest that vague words like un unlawfully or um, feloniously were sufficient to allege a substantive element of a crime, um, prosecutors' jobs would actually become much more difficult. They'd well, be counsel, let me ask you a question. If, if uh, <coughs> the language in Johnson that says ravish is not enough to get you to force, but that feloniously and against the will is for, gets you to force, is that, well, first of all, is, um, is, do you think that's a holding from Johnson? Is it something that's that if we're following our own precedent that we would follow in this case? Um, I don't think you have to follow it. I think um, also, <coughs> although in the context of sufficiency, essentially overrules that and requires proof of against a person's will and um, force separately. But because what I'm, what I'm getting at is do we, how could we, because the, this case is so similar to that, how could we accept your argument without saying we're overruling Johnson when there really doesn't seem to be any reason why Johnson is wrong. You know, what has changed in the interim that, that would mean we should overturn that well, longstanding I, precedent? 
Your Honor, I would, I would point out, first of all, that Johnson doesn't just include those two words. It includes the words with force and arms, as I mentioned at the outset. It includes um, the word violently with regard to the assault, at least. It, it, it um, includes the word ravish, which alone isn't enough, but it also includes carnally no. And the court sort of said with all of those together, there's a clear implication of force. Well, that's why I was asking you about, because, but Johnson pretty clearly, doesn't it pretty clearly say feloniously and against a will alone are enough to get you to force? Like there's that, that they actually discuss that in the opinion. So, you know, so I agree with you. There is, there's other things the court could have said and then adding in this and this and this as well, it gets you to force, but that, I don't think that's what the opinion said. I think th they said those two things together get you to force. I, it just seems so similar to this case. I, I think the fact that under our statute, there, it requires force and against the will. To double count against the will essentially renders the provision of force um, meaningless. And um, I don't think that's supported by our case law. For example, this court recently in State versus Connor went into great detail about what the word and means and what the word or means. This statute says force and against the victim's will. And I think and requires both of them. Um, I don't know the exact statute that was in time in place at the time um, Johnson was decided, but I think um, following Johnson at this point would effectively eliminate the element of force from sexual battery. And to the extent this court relied on it for other other um, sexual crimes that require force, um, it, it would get rid of an entire element in contravention of the General Assembly's clearly stated intent in the statute. How would the uh, interests of justice be served by our holding that this indictment, <clears throat> excuse me, that this petition um, was insufficient to confer jurisdiction? I mean, you're, you're not contending, are you, that, <clears throat> that your client didn't have notice of what the allegations were? Correct. That's right. Um, I'm not. I'm not making a notice argument here today. I'm not making a double jeopardy argument here today. I'm making a statutory compliance argument. Um, the statute requires that the petition allege facts supporting every element, and you can stare at this petition for as long as you want. I just don't think force is there. Um, the interests of justice are served because that's what the General Assembly has told us the law is in this state. Um, that the petition must follow this statute, um, and the interest of justice is also in the, the practicability, the workability of this solution. Um, prosecutors and people drafting charging indictments, when they follow the statute, when they allege every element, it's clear what needs to happen. I think if this court were to relax that or somehow eliminate that um, requirement despite the language of the statutes, it would be a more difficult for job for prosecutors. I think then you would have notice problems, then you would have double jeopardy problems. Um, then this court would be seeing a whole bunch of petitions with a wide variety of language and having to do this sort of tedious examination of whether this word means this and whether this supplies this and whether all the elements are, are alleged here. I mean, honestly, just, just follow the form, right? Like there's a, there's a form that the prosecutor gets, it cites all the elements, you fill in the blanks, we all then know what's coming, it's predictable, it's workable, it has been for centuries in the case of criminal indictments and decades for the, in the case of juvenile petitions. Counsel, just so I'm, I'm clear that I understand uh, what you just uh, said to Justice Allen, that, that you are not challenging 
the notice portion of the statute. That's right. And, and there was no objection to the um, uh, notice at, uh, at trial. There was no objection to the petition, um, which was a jurisdictional defect that can be raised at any time. That's right. So, so just so I'm clear, under uh, 1802, you are, you are conceding that there is sufficient precision in the petition clearly, uh, that clearly apprises the juvenile of the conduct which he is subject, which is the subject of the allegation. Um, not to the extent that it doesn't assert facts supporting the element of force. Um, I, I, I really so, so help me with the difference there. You, I mean, yeah. you said initially that um, you, you were not contesting notice, and, and now it sounds like you are. Sorry, I, I apologize. To be clear, I'm not contesting notice. Um, I think the juvenile knew that he had been alleged to have sexual contact um, with this victim and that it was done against her will. In that vague notion of that, that conduct, um, yes. So, so you are conceding that uh, uh, the petition complied with that second portion of 1802? Um, yes, it does. Uh, well, uh, arguably so, yes. Um, if there are no further questions, I will take a seat. Um, and I, I just ask this court to affirm the Court of Appeals opinion. And if, if this court does um, agree with the state in this case, ask for a remand for reconsideration of the issues that the Court of Appeals did not reach um, when it decided this case on jurisdiction. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. May it please the court again. Um, I'll take a few moments just to touch on some of the item or some of the issues that were raised by juveniles appellate counsel. Um, juveniles appellate counsel referenced the case of Alston, and I'll just note that in that case, I believe the holding there was limited to um, cases that are uh, raised on that specific set of facts. I believe that was a um, case in which the victim and the defendant had been in a uh, long-standing relationship or a prior sexual relationship. So I think that case can be distinguished in that way. Counsel, I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off, but why, why isn't this a question of statutory interpretation? Right? Why, why isn't this a question of, of whether or not the allegation that uh, the, the juvenile engaged in sexual contact uh, with the victim by touching the victim's vaginal area against uh, the victim's will uh, why, why is that not sufficient to assert facts supporting the element of force? Your Honor, I'm not sure if I'm understanding accurately, but the state's position is that the petition was sufficient. Um, right, and my, and my question is, why isn't this statutory interpretation? I apologize, Your Honor, I'm not sure if I understand the but, question. Well, so, so we've talked about indictments, we've talked about so, some, some other, Johnson, uh, 
why isn't the argument or, or why isn't uh, this case controlled by uh, the petition here asserted touching uh, uh, the vaginal area against the victim's will, why isn't that facts supporting the element of force under the statute? Your Honor, um, I apologize if I'm not understanding, but I think I agree with what you're saying, which is that this petition sufficiently alleged all of the elements of sexual battery and that it did exactly as is required under 7B-1802. This petition um, here, it did contain a plain and concise statement asserting facts supporting every element of sexual battery with sufficient precision to apprise the juvenile of the conduct which was the subject of the allegation. And um, again, I think to there is an important distinction that the elements include by force and against the will, but the petition is required, is not required to use the words by force when alleging that element. That the petition is only required to assert facts supporting every element of the criminal offense. And again, here, the state's position is that the element of force was sufficiently um, charged, uh, or the, sufficiently, the petition sufficiently alleged facts, excuse me, supporting the element of force. Again, I think this can be a confusing area, specifically addressing force in the sexual offense statutes, and that could be Thank difficult you. for Thank prosecutors. Thank you, counsel. I believe your time's expired. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you both.